Welcome to the Marie Manu Cherry Show, where energy and medicine meet. I will be your host for the next hour. I have over 19 years of healthcare experience and began my career as an energy medicine practitioner while working as an oncology nurse at a Seattle area hospital. My skill in moving energy combined with my medical background have been a catalyst for change in many people's lives. I hope the next hour will be transformative for you as well. Hello, and welcome to the Marie Manu Cherry Show. We're live here in Seattle where energy and medicine meet. And I'm super, super, super happy today because, and I know not not everyone's going to agree with me because my Facebook account is showing that not everyone agrees with me, but I'm just very, very happy um, with the healthcare plan resolution. Brilliant! (laughs) And Eric and I, we've talked about this before, you know, how um, we really believe that uh, everyone should have rights to healthcare. Yeah, yeah. I think that everybody should have access to health care, regardless of their economic situation. It just seems only fair in the most prosperous country in the world that we wouldn't forget about uh, all the citizens of the country. I mean, it seems ridiculous. It's lovely. I I was so happy. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We've had Christopher Renstrom on the show. He's an astrologer, lives in Utah. And he predicted that it was going to move favorably um, with the Supreme Court. Well, yeah, just in case anybody's been in a cave all morning or whatever and they (laughs) they haven't heard, the Supreme Court did take up the issue of whether the uh, quote-unquote Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act could be deemed uh, constitutional and therefore was legal. Mm -hmm. And uh, most pundits thought that the Supreme Court was going to strike it down as being unconstitutional, not because they actually believed that it was unconstitutional, but that they believed that the Supreme Court had so many conservatives on there that they were going to be politically active and therefore strike it down as being unconstitutional just because they could. And the Supreme Court actually did what the Supreme Court is supposed to do, which was look at the legality of the situation. And they said, yes, this is constitutional. So uh, that means going forward, the uh, Affordable Health Care Act unless it is repealed, will actually move into place. So. I just, I'm just very thrilled and happy and I'm very grateful for our country growing up. I feel Me like too. we're maturing and we're th- starting to think of others. And even though it's not perfect, as is nothing truly is, right. we have opportunities to change it um, as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, yeah. And let it be. It can be tweaked. It can be uh, improved over time, sure. Absolutely. I look at the French system of healthcare, and I, I've only heard amazing things about it and seen documentaries about it, and it's profound. Yeah. And, and it's a fascinating way where no one is denied access to healthcare. And if your doctor wants to order you an MRI, he doesn't have to look at your insurance to see mm-hmm. if it's going to be paid and can you afford the thousand dollars that's not covering it, right? <laughs> right. And their system is significantly different than what our system Absolutely. is going to be, is. which is yeah. just that everybody's going to have access to health insurance. Right. Uh, so most that means, people. yeah, no, right. everybody mm-hmm. uh, will be offered a, an affordable right. uh, insurance program. So they'll be expanding Medicare. They'll be um, encouraging insurance companies to lof- offer uh, low income insurance uh, to people. So. It's, uh, you know, we're going to have essentially the same system that we have, except for everybody's going to have insurance, which is a good thing. And I think it makes us competitive. You know, I think that, you know, if if we supposedly have some of the best, you know, healthcare in the world, which, Mm -hmm. of course, we ranked 128 um, in our healthcare system, you know, globally, which is not a great number, really, quite frankly. Um, Even our immortality rate with infants is astronomically high for mm-hmm. a developed nation and one of the most powerful countries in the world. So we supposedly are. Um, I think it's uh, fabulous that we can, as you said, tweak it, make it better. Sure. We know? can over time. Absolutely. We can, absolutely. Yeah. And one of my um, 
pet peeves, too, is our physicians work way too hard. They're exhausted. True enough. And, you know, when we look around in other nations, you know, doctors may make a little less. And maybe our doctors won't be happy with that. I'm not really sure Mm. um, how it's all going to happen. But maybe if they get more time off and get to go on great vacations. and I'm all for people getting vacations. Yeah, not have to eat their lunch out of a a styrofoam cup. I'm um, not sure this is in that bill, but know. Uh, you know that may be something. <laughs> it's to something we can tweak down the road. Yeah, I've absolutely. Seen many doctors, you know, on their breaks, eating soup from the cafeteria out of a styrofoam cup while they're reading, you know, orders and charts or writing orders, right. and and they don't look relaxed to me or content or happy. Well, and, you know what uh, I uh, I've found interesting about this whole debate is that the the right wing seems so opposed to this, uh, but they're like, we got to protect Medicare, we've got to protect Social mm-hmm. Security. And those are programs that the right wing fought tooth and nail against them being implemented. But now they're considered that third rail. They're sacred. You know, and I think people down the line, 10, 15 years from now, are going to consider this to be sacred as well, like Social Security and Medicare, you know. Well, you know, one of my favorite things, and then we'll go straight to our guests because I love interviewing people on the show. It's one of my favorite things to do, um, is that I love that people are going to be able to change jobs if they want to. They're not going to have to worry about their pre-diagnosed condition and having to not be insured if they don't like their job. So many people have to stay in jobs they don't like because of their own health situation or their child's health situation. It's a very limiting Well, you've talked about on the show how uh, powerful stress is to being uh, bad for people's health. Yeah. You know, and I can only imagine uh, that the stress of having to stay in a job that you really dislike or the stress of uh, being denied health care because you have a pre-existing condition. Just get sicker. It's got to be, you know, terrible for your body. So. Uh, to have that stress taken off oh, and knowing that you're going to be taken care of. It's amazing. That's got to just make we're people lucky. healthier. Yes, we're lucky. Yeah. So anyway, Eric and I are obviously thrilled. We're on the same page. <laughs> we are. And if you're not, we're very sorry that you're not thrilled. And uh, we hope that eventually um, something will happen in your life that makes you as happy as we are today. <laughs> really? No, yeah. really. We all deserve to be happy, which is a lovely Absolutely. thing. Maybe a great lunch. Have a great lunch. <laughs> right. and that'll have a great cheer lunch. You up. There you go. So today I'm interviewing Dr. Eric Maisel. He's a revolutionary thinker, really, when it comes to psychology. In fact, new psychology is the way he likes to frame uh, many of the things that he writes and talks about. His most recent book, Rethinking Depression, How to Shield how to shed mental health labels and create personal meaning, I think is a lovely book. I am encouraging our listeners to go out and get this book. You're really going to like it. Um, Dr. Maisel is the author of 40 books, which is widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach. Fascinating. Can't wait to hear about that. He trains creativity coaches nationally and internationally and provides core training for the Creativity Coaching Association. Um, also, Dr. Manzel, Maisel, excuse me, writes a regular column for Professional Artist Magazine and the Rethinking Depression blog for Psychology Today, which is very fascinating. So thank you, Dr. Maisel, for coming on the show today. Hi, Marie. Eric, please. I can be the other Eric. Okay, great. Yes, Eric, lovely. Um, I just love this book. I am so happy that we finally have something on the market that really describes what, what depression is, even though... That is something that we're still, I guess, as a culture, people are trying to figure out. Yeah, you know, pe- people have written in my vein for a long time. There's a fellow named Thomas Zaz um, who's been writing for 40 years and ignored. <laughs> so be- because um, I have the minority opinion that depression isn't a mental disorder, since it's such a minority opinion, of course it gets uh, 
lost in the buzz of antidepressants and pharmaceutical ads and what have you. But I'm not the only person writing about this. People have been writing about it for a long time now. I'm sure it's true, but for some reason... It has not been brought to my attention. No, so that's the, right. It gets it gets lost. Yeah. It gets lost because I think the main reason it gets lost is a really interesting reason is that we've lost words mm. like sadness and despair and what have you. Mm. When a person feels sad, they call themselves depressed now. They've bought the language. As a culture, we've all bought the language. So it's really hard to have any other kind of way of thinking about sadness if no one can even say they're sad. I know I, I find it fascinating. You know, I tend to be more of an optimistic, upbeat person, and I was depressed once um, postpartum um, with one of my kids, and uh, I couldn't say anything. I mean, I couldn't. T- I couldn't even really say how I was feeling. Nobody knew mm-hmm. I was depressed. I was like in this black hole. I mean, truly, for months and months. And um, uh, thankfully, my hormones did whatever adjusting they needed to do, and I came out of it. But I was like paralyzed to really speak my thoughts, and so. I felt when I had that experience, I'm like, wow, I finally know what depression feels like. And when I look at the majority of people who I know, um, especially clients who take antidepressants, I don't really feel they're depressed. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think they're not happy, um, which is one of the things that you talk about exclusively right. in your book. Not only not happy, but I think one of the things we don't understand well enough is the extent to which many people have evaluated life as a cheat. It's not just that they're not particularly happy, it's that they have a vision of life, and life hasn't matched that vision. And now their background coloration is a kind of sadness all the time. They thought life would be something else, and it turns out to be exactly this. And so if you've made that evaluation, you're you're down the road, you're walking down the road to not feeling that life is meaningful, and you're down the road to acting like you have a mental disorder of depression. So part of what I try to suggest to folks is they really think through if they've evaluated life that negatively, and if they have, maybe they want to rethink that evaluation. Mm, I think that's absolutely lovely because I I feel that if you know if you're sad about something, then that's good information, actually. You know, like, absolutely. Right? No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like maybe you need to change your course of life, perhaps. I mean, it seems to me so obvious that if you have a job that bores you or that you hate, if you're in a relationship that that's unpleasant to you, et cetera, you're not going to be in a good mood. Mm-hmm. Right. Somehow it seems it, somehow that seems like revolutionary thinking to see that you might be in a bad mood if you're bored all day long and then go home to a relationship that isn't working. But it's obvious that you're not going to be in a good mood. One of the things I try to teach, this is one of my catchy little phrases, is to try to have meaning trump mood. We're paying way too much attention to the mood we're in mm. rather than to the meaning we would like to make. And so we're not making ourselves proud by our efforts. Wow. We're acting like our mood needs to dictate to us. and That just isn't necessarily the case. We can reorient ourselves away from whatever mood we're in towards the meaning we would like to make and actually enjoy life more that way. Wow. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. So how do you think this all happened? How did the, the, you know, the area of mental health decide what depression is? And then how did we get, you know, millions and millions of Americans, in my opinion, addicted to antidepressants? Yeah, I mean, of course, it's a long story. As long ago as, you know, the 1800s, there were mental disorders being created by folks essentially for political reasons. For instance, if you were a slave and didn't like it, you got the mental disorder of being like an ornery slave. 
psychiatry was used for political purposes and has been for a very long time. In the 1950s, the first Diagnostic and Statistical Manual came out, and that was a great invention by the American Psychiatric Association, a great coup, to have folks sitting around in a room saying, this is a mental disorder, that's a mental disorder. It's really a wacky way to decide what is a mental disorder, having folks sitting around saying it. And, of course, they made homosexuality, mental disorder, and lots of other things. Then they just changed their minds when it became politically incorrect to think that homosexuality was a mental disorder. Then they said, well, it isn't. So we've had for whatever that is now, 60 or 70 years, folks sitting around in rooms, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists, sitting around in a room deciding sort of by fiat what's a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. You may or may not know that the next iteration of the manual, the DSM-5, is coming out in 2013, which is pretty darn soon. And we're going to have scores and scores of new mental disorders just created by folks sitting around. There will be new childhood mental disorders. Um, Grief, which used to be a depression exemption, is now going to be a mental disorder if you grieve for more than X amount of time. You know, if you lose a child and you're still sad after a few weeks, that's a mental disorder. Wow. But that's what's coming. Wow. So where it's come from is um, the ability of a professional class to do a certain thing, then, of course, accompanied by what pharmaceuticals want, namely to sell more drugs. Right. And, of course, I mean, of course, to me, um, antidepressants aren't drugs that are treating an illness. They're chemicals with effects. They have real effects. And you may want those effects. I think I need to say, you know, loudly and clearly that if you're in a deep hole, if you're suicidal, what have you, you may absolutely want the effects that those chemicals can provide. But that's not the same as treating an actual disease with an actual medicine. Right. And, and then you have all the side effects of the pharmacology, because, you know, they have to bond with proteins, this medicine, and your body has to break it down. Yeah. Absolutely. And, of course, you may have caught the... Uh, 60-minute segment, that's probably several months ago now, where the Harvard researcher has been doing the most research on the placebo effect, came out on 60 Minutes to say that he thought that 100% of the effect of antidepressants on mild and moderate depression is the placebo effect, namely Mm. just thinking you're taking something is what's helping you. Mm. Wow. Because I have a lot of clients who um, their medication doesn't work. In fact, they're, they're on multiple you know, antidepressants, maybe with an anti-anxiety on top of it, some with an antipsychotic, yep. <laughs> and they still feel exactly the same. They Nothing has really changed. They're still not happy, not fulfilled. And of course, I believe as you do, that they need to make changes in their life to create That's authentic right. happiness. But nothing has changed in their life, and they don't feel better, even though they're now taking two or three different types of pharmacology. That's right. And that isn't necessarily, obviously, the only kind of report we get. Uh, some people believe that they're quite helped by them. However, as I say, we don't know if what the help is may be the placebo effect as opposed to any particular chemical effect. Mm-hmm. So what happened in the um, psychology realm of helping people that it switched from having a conversation with someone and finding out what was really going on with them versus giving them a drug? What happened? Well, it's it, it's funny and interesting. It's It's part of the sort of legal mandate of being a psychotherapist that you are supposed to act like you are diagnosing and treating. That's your kind of legal job description. You never were allowed really to just chat about things. <laughs> that wasn't what, you know, your state 
was saying you could do. You were supposed to be diagnosing and treating mental disorders. And the only way, the only legitimized way of diagnosing and treating mental disorders is to use this book, the DSM-4, the Diagnostic and Statistical mm-hmm. Manual of the uh, American Psychiatric Association. So a certain game got played all along the long, you know, all the way through with legislatures and professionals and pharmaceutical companies that there was this idea that by looking at, so to speak, symptom pictures, you could diagnose. And then, of course, you could treat any way you like. The DSM does not say, A, what's causing anything, or B, what you should do about it. It mm. just lists one set of symptom pictures after another. Mm. So that's kind of the shorthand for how we've ended up where we are. Every professional psychotherapist is by law supposed to be diagnosing and treating mental disorders, whether or not they believe in that model or not. Wow. So then we can kind of assume, at least my mind goes this way, that then all the psychotherapists or most of them are probably on antidepressants too, because <laughs> I mean, most likely they're not happy you know, with their life well, either. That's only, if you, that's only if you think they're not cynically buying this. I mean, they may understand uh, better. They may understand what's going on. On the one, on their left hand, they have to fill out a form which which gives a DSM diagnosis and a treatment plan, and that that's the thing they turn into the HMO. On the right hand, they're probably just chatting about things like as any normal human being would do. And I, I think most therapists are caught in that bind and kind of know that it's a bind where they're where they must diagnose because that's the way they get paid. But in fact, they may not be b- believing mm. um, that these are mental disorders. Mm. And, If you were to read the definition of a mental disorder as defined by the American Psychiatric Association, you would just shake your head. Uh, What in God's name are they talking about? (laughs) I don't think if you I I I don't think there's any therapist who would like to bet either their first nickel or their last nickel that they could define what a mental disorder is. Right. I I don't think they could do it. You know what I find fascinating is when I was in nursing school, we were. Talk, we were educated about women who were placed on Valium, like in, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, because they were uncomfortable being housewives or frustrated with not having a healthy relationship or yep. whatever it was. And so they would go in to talk to their doctor because they were miserable and they were placed on Valium. And decades later, they were still on the drug. And, and so when they came in, in house and hospital, they would actually, you know, go into, um, you know, a uh, side effects of being deprived of the drug. So we had to withdrawal. Right. Right. We had to make sure that they were getting their Valium. And, and, and of course now we look at it and think it's silly as you you were drug dealers. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And, and so it's fascinating how we're still doing it, but just now it, for some reason it seems. And we're doing it more and more. Mm. I, I think this may be, this is just my impressionistic feel but it seems to me that there are more drug ads all the time on TV. It feels like every second ad is a right. drug ad. And I, I know that they must be running wonderful focus groups because now they can make the side effects sound like benefits. <laughs> Except for the one, and death. Yeah. death. And, you, and you could expect right. a, a heart attack and convulsions and maybe death. Right. Yeah, it, it's quite amazing how that's working, but we're, we're becoming more and more accustomed to taking drugs for, for everything for everything unwanted, and also for just things that are slightly not what we want, like our eyelashes not being long enough. Can you believe? Oh, I know. Yeah. That there's <laughs> medication or drugs for that. 
it, it, but that's where we are. Yeah, and it can permanently change the color, I believe, of the sclera or the iris. I can't remember which one, but I mean that. Exactly, that's the side effect. Right. Now. It, it should give you slight pause, but it's not really giving people pause because they're just buying this picture that anything they want changed, they can have changed via a chemical. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, one of the things I love about your book, too, is you help individuals to determine how they could create a meaningful life. So not only do you talk about why we should maybe reevaluate um, taking drugs every single day, and, and, of, and of course, you know, something that's very challenging is the amount of children we have now on drugs to yeah, monitor absolutely. and control their behavior, um, which is shockingly scary because they're starting young taking medication um, and thinking that it's okay or normal. Absolutely. Really scary. Well, um, what I'm, my biggest message is trying to sell the paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning. I think Ah. it's an important shift that once a person understands the logic of the shift, it actually improves their life dramatically. But in natural psychology, which is the new psychology of meaning that I've been developing for the last few years. I love the title. The title's fabulous. Yeah, and uh, there's a book, Natural Psychology, the new psychology of meaning that will be coming out in a month or two. Oh, wonderful. Um, And in it, there's not just the major idea of the paradigm shift from seeking meaning to making meaning, but lots of tactics and strategies for morning meaning check-ins and how to make a meaning investment and how to seize a meaning opportunity how to deal with meaning crises, trying to create a whole language so that people can speak to themselves more intelligently about the subjective experience of meaning, how they can influence that experience, and how they can, so to speak, make more meaning, and especially make, and this is one of my phrases, make value-based meaning. Because we can sort of create meaning all kinds of ways, and sometimes it just comes, you know, unbidden. You go out and to the evening, look up at the night sky, and you're, you're filled with some experience. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful, but that's not the same as trying to identify your values and principles and then making meaning based on your values and principles. Mm-hmm. I think that's what makes us proudest, when we actually go about our life trying to make value-based meaning. That's mm-hmm. what makes us the proudest. Oh, well, I can't wait to continue the conversation. Um, Eric, Dr. Maisel is here in the studio. Well, he's really not, but he is via phone from San Francisco. We're going to take a break here on the Marie Manu Cherry Show, and we'll be right back. Become a Reiki master the weekend of October 5th through October 7th at the Redmond Town Center Marriott. This two-and-a-half-day transformative workshop is open to all levels of experience and will certify you in Reiki 1, 2, and 3. You will learn to move energy within the body by practicing on other workshop participants. Marie will be your instructor, guiding you with her own symbolic sight and providing constructive feedback. Take this opportunity to fulfill your dreams of becoming your very own certified Reiki master. You will receive attunements that allow you to practice Reiki at the master level and information on the laws that govern professional practice in Washington State. Enrollment is limited. Please call 425-825-5671 or visit Marie's website, energyintuitive.com, for more details. There's an exciting new astrology hour, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. with Deborah Silverman. Deborah's unique blend of psychology and astrology turns planetary language into plain English. Join us for an interactive hour that's guaranteed to give you personal insights in a fun and entertaining way. Tune in to Deborah Silverman Live. Whatever your life question, marriage, job, family, relocation, or just curiosity, 
Call for a live reading Tuesdays at 5 p.m. And visit Deborah's website at DebraSilvermanAstrology.com. Have you been thinking about heading down a healthier path but aren't quite sure where to begin? Marie has a set of DVDs that can help steer you in the right direction with wisdom, insight, and a dash of humor. The Healing From Within series imparts practical tools you can easily use to expand personal health. Marie collaborated with frequent radio guest and naturopath Dr. Sheila Dunmerritt to produce four DVDs that include detoxification, heart health, brain health, and hormones. The DVD series can be purchased online at energyintuitive.com or by calling 425-825-5671. Are you looking for the best skincare treatment in the Pacific Northwest? Sick of regular spa facials that don't address the problems you seek to correct? Dermaspace, home of the iDerm Facial Treatment, was recently voted Best Facial in Western Washington for 2011 by King 5 Evening Magazine viewers. A frequent guest of the Marie Manucherry Show, Jody Leon has brought one of Hollywood's best-kept skincare secrets to the Pacific Northwest. This is skin detox at its best. Cleanse, hydrate, rejuvenate. Perfect for men and women of all ages who wish to address problem skin in addition to its amazing anti-aging benefits. It's physical therapy for your skin. The Iderm Facial Treatment has been used by A-list celebrities and clientele of all walks of life for over 70 years. Jody Leon, skin guru and owner of Dermaspace, is proud to be the only licensed esthetician certified to perform the Iderm Facial Treatment in the Pacific Northwest. For more information and to book online, visit Dermaspace.com. That's Dermaspace.com. Or call 206-849-6620. Get current weather, traffic, and news. Visit 1150kknw.com and stay informed with Alternative Talk 1150 AM. And welcome back to the Marie Manu Cherry Show, where energy and medicine meet here in Seattle. You can also listen to us on the web at Energy Intuitive intuitive.com or Eric how else can people listen to the show sure just log on to the KKNW website at 1150 kknw.com click the listen and watch live button that's on the uh, banner on the uh, front page and that'll take you right to our listening options so you got a few wonderful and we love that we get um, listeners from around the world it's just such a blessing and we're incredibly grateful and honored actually um, today, I'm interviewing Dr. Eric Maisel. He is author of 40 books. He provides workshops in San Francisco, New York, London, Paris, Berlin, and other locations worldwide. Um, his books have been translated into Korean, Japanese, Spanish, French, German, Dutch, Turkish, and other languages. And he has done hundreds of radio, television, and print interviews all around the world. So welcome back, Eric. It's wonderful to have you. Great to be back. Lovely. Can I tell you an anecdote? Yeah. The uh, intro you did with Eric about um, healthcare. I was I just spent a month in Prague, and I did some workshops with the American Chamber of Commerce of Prague. And one of the things they're thinking about there, and this will seem so different from the American experience, they have an excess of medical facilities in Prague, <laughs> and so they're looking to position Prague as a surgical vacation destination. <laughs> wow! It, it's like. There is a big world out there of other experiences different from our experience. Right. And, and our culture is quite ill. You know, I mean, our, our people are obese and, of course, depressed. And, you know, Americans take a lot of pharmacology. Yep. And, you know, the best health care is really preventative medicine. And conventional medicine isn't really geared towards real prevention, in my opinion. 
And and so, you know, if we if we help everyone to be able to have access, so if they break a leg, they can get a great X-ray and a cast position correctly, and and maybe if they feel well enough, then they can go see their naturopathic doctor or get some acupuncture mm-hmm. or change their diet and start to really be. Yeah, healthy. but we need lots of you know cultural change at the peer pressure level. Ah. Just the way smoking has changed, certainly in my lifetime, here anyway, it's really interesting to what extent young people are smoking around the world at at horribly high rates. 60, 70, 80% of young people in some countries, those 13 to 18-year-olds, are picking up smoking again. Wow. It's really interesting and horrible. Mm -hmm. But uh, even, even if one generation has changed its ways because they've seen something or understand something, they're not communicating it very well to the next generation. So it's interesting. It's fascinating. And I do like that Prague is making it a surgical destination. It means that their country is healthy and they don't need all these freestanding medical facilities. Mm -hmm. It's great. So in your book, you talk about um, investigating what meaning means. You know, what what does it mean to have a meaningful life? And what are meaningful things for you? Yeah, obviously it's a big subject, but let me try to get to a starting point, and that is I think if you think about psychologies and philosophies and religions, their stance on meaning is usually embedded somewhere but not made explicit, so you don't actually know what Freudian psychology or Christianity or what have you is saying about the exact nature of meaning. But what I think they're mostly saying is that it's something extrinsic, that there's an ob- that there's objective meaning, and that it's something like a lost object, like a lost purse, and if you run around enough, you'll find it. And I think that's completely mistaken. Mm-hmm. I think that meaning is a subjective psychological experience, like other psychological experiences. There's no objective meaning. Different people experience different things. One person might find it uh, meaningful to um, spend money on traveling to Mars. Another person might think that's a frivolous waste of time and not meaningful mm-hmm. at all, etc. So first of all, it's a subjective psychological experience. Second, it's an idea we form. We actually create an idea of what we think meaning means. To make this long story short, when we begin to understand that meaning is a subjective psychological experience, we then also simultaneously understand that we can influence it more. Mm-hmm. We can create a menu of meaning opportunities, things which have given us the experience of meaning over time or that we think might give us the experience of time. And there are only 20 or 30 large categories of meaning opportunities that human beings have experienced. One is creativity, another is relationship, another is service, etc. You know, we could name all of these big categories. When you create this menu for yourself, you begin to have a much clearer picture of how you may want to spend your day in your life by seizing these meaning opportunities, making actual meaning investments, and very importantly, spending whole chunks of your day in what I call meaning neutral, when you don't Mm. pester yourself about meaning. Mm. We've had this odd idea that life is either meaningful or it isn't meaningful, which is really an odd idea. What life really is is the following. We need exactly as much meaning as we need. And so if for one person three or four hours of meaning on a given day is enough, then the rest of the day can be spent, you know, running errands and doing things which are boring and what have you, and you don't have to get to this sad place of, is life meaningful, because you realize that you're spending this time in meaning neutral and that you get to make new meaning later this evening or tomorrow. When you start to get this 
model in mind of how you can negotiate a day around meaning investments and meaning neutral periods, you actually feel much more empowered, happier, and you and as I say, you can stop pestering yourself about whether life isn't or is meaningful. Wow. You know, I think a lot of people do pester themselves about that and they feel very inadequate. And, uh, and, you know, when are they pestering themselves? When life feels least meaningful. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if they're at a party or, you know, talking to their child, having a good time, doing whatever it is that provokes the experience of meaning, that's not the moment they're asking themselves, is life meaningful? At that moment, it's just feeling meaningful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's when they're at, I don't know, a boring lecture or right. uh, they get some bad news or what have you. That's when they ask the question, gee, life doesn't really feel very meaningful. We ask that question of ourselves at the worst possible moments, and we mm. want to get smarter about that. We don't want to be asking that question of ourselves when we're most down. Mm-hmm. And and also, then you also realize, well, gosh, I really don't want to be, I don't want to participate too many more of these boring meetings. You, you know, I, I mean, in other words, I think the feeling that of whatever we have, That's right. Right, That's right, it's valuable. And And in my language, there are many things we do that are in the surface of meaning that are, that that are themselves not experienced as meaningful. It's actually mm-hmm. an important point. Mm-hmm. Because if you're, if, let's say, and I work with creative performing artists as a creativity coach. I've been doing it for decades. Wow. If you're writing a novel, virtually every day you hate your novel. That's just the truth of the matter. <laughs> that's, that's who we are as human beings. We're, we're critical of our efforts. We didn't like that paragraph. We're not sure we know whether to send our character to, you know, Zanzibar or Paris or what have you. So we're sort of upset most of the time. Nevertheless, what we're doing is in the surface of meaning. And when we remember that ultimately, this is an effort we have deemed meaningful, then we can better tolerate the fact that those moments or hours or days aren't feeling meaningful. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a better way to think of those difficulties. Mm-hmm. And to give you a kind of related example, about how we don't want to be thinking about our mood so much and rather thinking about our meaning-making efforts. We just don't care what mood Eisenhower was in in the days before D-Day. We don't care if he was sad or happy, anxious, whatever. We want him to do what he needs to do. And I think that's what we want from ourselves, ultimately. We want the same kind of effort in the service of those things we think are important. We want to do the things we think are important create real effort in that direction and not ask ourselves, are we happy while we're doing it or are we sad while we're doing it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you think that we, we ask that question too often, you know, am I sad or I'm happy? And of course, most of the time I think people aren't happy. We ask it too often. And we also ask it because we're not actually engaged in our most important work. Uh, um, life is not set up to provide us meaningful experiences. Most jobs, most professions are narrower than our heart wants them to be. And so we have to find, usually we have to find additional meaning opportunities so that we feel like we're doing our real important work. Mm -hmm. If we don't have work that we deem important, doesn't matter what the world says, but if we don't do work that we deem is important or worthy or valuable or meaningful, then we are going to pester ourselves about the lack of meaning a lot of the time. So how do you coach people to eventually, hopefully, make a change to something that's more meaningful in their life? How do you help them get to that place where they could perhaps, first of all, identify that you know, it's not meaningful to them, which is really important, and I, I think that's, that's right. fabulous to get those skill sets. And then how do you help them determine what is meaningful? Because like you said, we're so unique. 
Sure. Well, first of all, it's a coaching model, not a therapy model. I'm not really interested um, in history. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in what my client wants to actually attempt this week. I know a lot of people who would love that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, and I, I'm really, you know, providing a certain, certain kinds of practices and language. And if a client understands the practices and languages, then they can begin immediately with a morning meaning check-in where they make decisions about where they're going to make meaning investments today. They can create a their own personal menu of meaning opportunities and kind of rank order them if they want to go that far and decide where they think they want to make uh, new meaning investments, et cetera, et cetera. There are a whole array of things a person can do, especially when they have the language to understand what they're attempting mm-hmm. and when they have some you know, kind of simple tactics and strategies for moving in a new direction. Mm-hmm. Well, I, th- I think the new language is important because that helps people change their perception and get out of mm-hmm. their old paradigm. Um, and, of course, the word meaningful, not very many people use that, but yet that is what everyone's looking for is that type of a, an experience. Um, That's right. And, the, and just as you say, they're mm-hmm. looking for it. It's very hard to get past that looking and seeking language because almost every human being, is, when they talk about meaning, uses as the verb in front of it looking or seeking as opposed to making. So that's why I say that's the paradigm shift we need to make as a species, because if each human being felt so instrumental, so brave, so heroic, that they understood that they needed to don the mantle of meaning maker and be the hero of their own story, we'd have so many people doing the right things. Mm -hmm. So, So let's say that someone is diagnosed, not surprisingly, with clinical depression, some, you know, Yep. They now have this diagnosis, right? And they're on medication and yep. they, they're they still not happy. And they're still, I guess, well, they think they are still depressed because, you know, nothing's changed. Yep. And mm-hmm. they pick up your book. Um, would it be in their best interest to go off their medication or to stay no, on it? No, not, not precipitously. Okay. Because these are chemicals with strong effects and they have tremendously strong effects to get off quickly. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous to get off them quickly. So... Right. Even though you, you as a listener may agree about what we're chatting about and even really in a heartfelt way want to get off your antidepressants, you can do that, but you can't do it precipitously. You really need to, you know, be in concert with your doctor and figure out how to get it off it over time. Right. So that's, the, that's obviously the first thing is that you don't want to do that precipitously. The second thing is... Psychotherapy may, in fact, be useful, but you just have to remember that it's just talk. You know, if you can get it off its pedestal as a medical-sounding thing, as a highfalutin thing, and just realize that it's one human being talking to another human being, well, then you've placed it properly, and that may well serve you. So if you're severely depressed or severely sad, you may well want to engage in psychotherapy with somebody who's useful to you, somebody who really can, you know, help you err your grievances and your sadness and what have you. It turns out there have been zillions of outcome studies of psychotherapy. It turns out what's not most important about a positive outcome is not the theoretical orientation or the credentials or the expertise of the psychotherapist. It's his or her warmth. It's whether he or she is a human being. And that's what you would want to be looking for if you were looking for the, the added thing that the you know psychological community can provide to you in addition to antidepressants, it's psychotherapy, and that may be useful to you. Mm. So to say that simply, there may still be a place for 
drugs until you can get off them, there may be a place for psychotherapy if you can find a human being to interact with. And then you have to face your actual real problems. Right. Then you have to look in the mirror, ask what's going on. You may have to upgrade your personality. You may have to make really huge changes like changing your job or changing your relationship or what have you. You may have to take new risks. You're certainly going to have to find lots of new courage to look at all of the things I'm talking about because it takes courage to look at these things. We're tricky, defended creatures. We just don't want to look at these things. And it's an act of courage to look at what's actually making us sad. Yeah, I completely agree. And that sadness is actually important to, you know, again, identify what's working in your life and what's not working. And and antidepressants mask emotions, at at least at some level. People feel kind of numb. Absolutely. And if what's making you sad can't be changed, you know, then you have to find the way to move into that attitude change where you can be more accepting of what is. Mm. Many things, sort of the serenity prayer, that's what I'm saying in another version. Some things we can change, some things we can control, some things we can influence, some things we can't do anything about. We just have to be as mature as we can be about that and live our lives according to what we can control and what we can't control. Mm -hmm. One of the things we can do a much better job of controlling that people don't do a good job of controlling is their own thinking. Mm-hmm. You can do a far better job. You know, cognitive therapists teach a really simple three-step technique of noticing what you're saying to yourself and disputing those thoughts that don't serve you and substituting more affirmative or useful thoughts. It's very simple to say. It's actually simple to do if one would do it. Most people, you know, read a book on such a subject, sort of nod their head, but then don't actually do that cognitive work. Or they'll read a book on anxiety management and nod their head and say, boy, I need some anxiety management tools, (laughs) and yet never really learn one. So those are the sorts of things that we could all do to better our lives, do a better job of how we think and what we think, and do a better job of managing our own anxiety. So obviously that would require being present, you know, so that you're really paying attention to your thoughts and then reevaluating and changing them. Being present, um, in in the language of natural psychology, I have a three-part vision of personality as original personality and formed personality and available personality. When you say present, my language would be to have at least enough available personality to do some of these things because we are burdened by our formed personality. Mm -hmm. We are burdened by that. Mm -hmm. We are repetitive creatures. We get stuck in our own personality. And so that's one of the things that we have to be mature about and understand that we are quite sort of rigidified and solidified at a certain point in our lives, but we still have enough available personality to be present to do the kind of work I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I think that is important to realize that we do have these fundamentally you know, challenging areas, but that it's okay. You know, it's not the end of the world. And that- it's not the end of the world. It may not be okay, we may, you know, really be disappointed in who we've become, and it may not be okay, mm-hmm. but we do have the chance to upgrade. We do have the chance to make use of our available personality to upgrade our formed personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think it's also important to appreciate whatever we have accomplished and where, absolutely. wherever we are. Um, yeah, Beautiful. Absolutely wonderful. We're going to go ahead and take another break here on the Marie Menu Cherry Show, and I have the pleasure and of interviewing Eric, who's the author of Rethinking Depression, How to Shed Mental Health Labels and Create Personal Meaning. And we'll be right back. 
Do you live on the East Coast or have the desire to travel there in the near future? Marie will be headed your way in September to teach at Squam in New Hampshire. What is Squam, you ask? Squam retreats bring great people together at a beautiful venue to focus on creativity and self-expression. This fall, Marie will be teaching two workshops on intuition and creativity. Come join Marie at Squam, September 12th through 16th. For more information, please visit squamartworkshops.com. Manson Mitchell talked to media psychiatrist Carol Lieberman on Friday about bad girl archetypes and using them to get good guys. On Saturday morning, we welcome back Joe Rambolo, the Sage of St. Louis, talking about Ascension 2012. Are you ready? Then Lou J. Free shares her intuitive gift and unique perspective. That's Manson Mitchell Friday morning at 10 and Saturday at 11 a.m. Pacific on Alternative Talk 1150 KKNW. You are always supported. You are never alone. From before you were born and throughout your whole life, you are accompanied by your spirit guides. Making contact with your spirit guides is just the first step on an extraordinary path to discovery. To find out how to make contact with the forces that have always been watching over you, join Marie at her Spirit Guide Workshop, Saturday, October 13th at the Lake Union Courtyard. This interactive day-long workshop will help reveal how you can deepen your relationship with your guides and increase their role in your life. Register online at energyintuitive.com or call 425-825-5671. Are you looking for tools to enhance your life or to bring those things you desire into your life? Marie offers a variety of CDs to help you do just that. Get acquainted with your seven primary chakras and balance your human energy system. Or is embracing your intuition what you're looking to learn? Or would you rather focus on a healthy immune system? These CDs and more are available through Marie's website at energyintuitive.com. For a complete list of CDs available and their descriptions, please visit Marie's website today. Talk radio with a difference. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. And welcome back to the Marie Menu Cherry Show. We're live here in kind of windy but very beautiful Seattle. I mean, it's super green here so everything is blooming including the weeds in my backyard which luckily one of my darling children who before she takes off to do an internship in Washington DC has been frantically weeding the yard. I keep thinking I should become a weed farmer because I am fantastic. <laughs> you good at it? Yeah. Okay so I think breakfast you know next month when Mina's <laughs> not home and you can come over and weed. It produces a lot of sneezing though. It does that's true. She has her antihistamine mean and then she's allergic to bees so she also has her epi pen on the counter mm-hmm. just in mm-hmm. case no i'm not good at, at pulling that i'm oh, good at growing them uh, growing them yes. okay then you're not coming over for <laughs> breakfast because i have way too many of those today i have the pleasure of interviewing dr mazel the author of rethinking depression and you're a duck and a beaver you went to um, school in oregon close to where we are i did i went to, after i got out of the army and Golly, what would that be? 68. I went to Oregon State because I was misinformed. I had noticed a brochure <laughs> that it had a great oceanography department, and I thought, therefore, it must be on the ocean. But it wasn't. No. So I didn't stay there long. And then I went to the next, in the fall, I went to University of Oregon and graduated uh, with a degree in philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a degree in psychology and creative writing. Yep, I have a couple of masters, a couple of undergraduate degrees, a couple of masters, and a doctorate. Oh, wonderful. And so aren't you so glad you took that creative writing um, program because, and did you know you were going to write 40 books? I mean, was, <laughs> was that on your mind? 
that was on my mind. I think I was writing uh, before then. Um, uh. Somewhere I, I can actually sort of remember when I was in the Army stationed in Korea, and I was my job title at that split second was armorer, namely I was the person in charge of all of the weapons. Mm. And Korea has a monsoon season, and weapons rust within days if you don't oil them. And I remember sort of watching them rust as I would read Dostoevsky and not quite get around to oiling them and begin to think that probably I was going to write. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I got fired as armorer because you actually (laughs) actually have to take care of the weapons. (laughs) (laughs) That's lovely. Well, we do have someone on the phone calling from your neck of the woods, actually, um, Dr. Maisel from San Francisco. Who do we have, Eric? We've got Laurel on the line from San Francisco. Hi, Laurel. How are you? Fine. How are you, Marie? Great. And thank you for waiting. I appreciate that. Thank you so Thanks much. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. So, great pardon? Great discussion. I know. Isn't it great? And I and, yeah. and what you get to get advice from Eric. Isn't that wonderful? I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> so your question, um, please. My question is, um, I'm having a lot of uh, paralysis around my um, living uh, my living conditions and my uh, work conditions. I live on a boat, and um, I've been living on a boat for 15 years with my husband, and he died about a year and a half ago, and now I find myself on this boat that I'm trying to figure out if I'm... I really love living on a boat, but it's a, it's a lot for me to handle. So I'm trying to figure out my next step in terms of my living situation and my work situation, which has also changed since he passed because I needed to get new skills, and I have, and I'm doing well. Generally, I'm feeling sad a lot of times, but I'm pretty mm-hmm. functional. And um, I'm just one asking about my next step. Well, to use my language, you know, I would advise you to think through which meaning investments you want to make next, namely, how do you want to live your life? What matters more than what? What are your biggest dreams and aspirations? Because there's probably no reason not to put them on the table right at the split second as you're deciding about huge changes, to kind of look back in your history at what things have seemed to provoke the experience of meaning in you and where you may want to go next with them, you know. And then there are just the natural things to say, which are to do the sort of, so to speak, informational interviews about next steps, you know, check things out, try to be as real as you can, not so real that you understand things too perfectly because that's actually something that makes us sad when we understand things too well, mm-hmm. but real enough to have a good sense of what next steps you may want to undertake. Then you have to marshal, you know, whatever energy you actually have, you have to marshal that energy to begin to take the next steps. Mm-hmm. So it's in a way a straightforward matter, except it starts with understanding what meaning investments you want to make. And that that's the, the secret and the big deal piece of knowing what to do next. Wow. And, and, you know, Eric, you mentioned earlier that um, grief is going to be a mental disorder pretty soon, you know, like in a few months. And, you know, it's such a subjective experience that we really can't say, oh, you know, you lost this type of person in your life and you get this amount of time to, you know, move on through it. Um, I think it's, I think it's both absurd and shameless to make it into a mental disorder. I just, it makes no sense to me. Um, And and, and we can't, whether there's a sense in which someone, so to speak, this is 
horrible language, but ought to get over the death after should move on, whether or not in some sense objectively one should, that really can't be, you know, a textbook call has to be right. about the life of the human being. Right. Because, you know, Laurel, you still feel like to me like you're in grief, um, as you should be, or I guess there's not a should, but I think it's normal and natural, and it's kind of hard to, you know, make um, decisions uh, right now. I love the well, idea of me, finding all the meaningful. One, let me say one other thing to mm-hmm. Laurel, if you're still there. Uh-huh. And that's, um, we don't quite understand this well enough, or we aren't clear enough about the following, and that is that choosing provokes anxiety. Mm. And all, every kind of choosing. Choosing, choosing provokes anxiety. Mm. Whether we're just trying to decide, should I have the, you know, the good-tasting cereal or the, or the good-for-me cereal, every kind of choice provokes a little bit of anxiety. And therefore, not only do you have to deal with the, should I be on the boat or shouldn't be on, be on the boat, but you have to deal with the anxiety of trying to choose. Mm. So what that means is, as you think about these matters, some amount of anxiety is naturally going to well up. And you won't be you won't be able to think all that clearly about your choices because that's one of the consequences of anxiety, namely some mental confusion. So you want to find some anxiety management techniques that work for you. Things as simple as some deep breathing, or some cognitive work, or some relaxation technique, or something, right. so that as you try to think about should I change my job, shouldn't I change my job, should I get off the boat, should I stay on the boat. Mm-hmm. When that anxiety wells up, that's part of the process of choosing. You'll know what to do to manage that anxiety so that you can think your most clearly. That sounds beautiful. What a, a great idea and wonder, wonderful advice. And also we're running out of time, but really I think that was very effective. What, what do you think, Laurel? That sounded good, didn't it? Um, I think that sounds really good. Me too. Me too. Well, we wish you the best, and Thank I'm you. so happy that Eric was able to take your call and offer some great insight. And thank you so much, Eric, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to have you. Oh, it was great to be with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I look forward to interviewing you again. Absolutely. I'll, right. I'll make sure I come back. Oh, I would love that. Thank you so much. Have a great day in San Francisco. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. It was a pleasure. I will see you next week. Until then, joyful blessings. Bye-bye.